Good morning. Good to see everybody on this beautiful, warm August day. We're so glad that you have joined us for worship this morning. Uh, we're continuing our study in the book of John. And this uh, past week, uh, Trevor was so kind as to correct my understanding of uh, English figures of speech. Um, last week, I, I used the simile and referred to it as a metaphor. So, um, you know... Uh, so to, to, to ensure that you know that I know the difference between a simile and a metaphor, he is sly as a fox is a simile. He is a fox is a metaphor. So uh, for all the, of those of you who are as astute as Trevor, uh, there you have it. So <laughs> moving right along, they say that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. It's a pretty familiar uh, saying that really implies that if, if you're going to be facing a difficult situation, it's a good idea to have uh, some clue as to what's going to happen, of, of what you're in for. For instance, if you knew your home was going to be broken into this evening you might take some steps to protect your, your house and your loved ones. Um, I don't know, uh, if your cameras are off, maybe you turn them on, maybe you call the police in advance, I'm not sure. Maybe you load your shotgun, I don't know. But you would take some steps if you knew that was gonna happen. If you knew there was an accident on 33 um, between where you are and where you need to go, you would then probably pull out your Maps app or whatever and try to find a way to circumvent that accident and take a detour to get to where you are going. So that's kind of what that statement is all about. And Jesus had been telling his disciples about what is to come from the very beginning. But now that he's about to leave them, he kind of steps it up a little bit. He kind of gives them a crash course on what is going to happen while he is gone, along with what they need to do. So last week, uh, we began chapter 15, and we began looking at the metaphor of the vine and the branches, and we discovered that... Uh, for us to have life, to produce spiritual fruit, we must stay connected to Jesus. In our text this morning, we're going to be picking up there halfway through chapter 5, we're going to see that Jesus gives his disciples a warning and a promise. The warning is, is that the hatred that was towards Jesus is now going to be directed to his disciples. And there will be a temptation for them to fall away. The promise is a reminder that Jesus is going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' words to his disciples are as applicable to us today as it was back then when he first uttered them. So let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us as we look at this chapter. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. And Lord, I thank you that um, um, you don't use me uh, because of anything I bring to the table. Lord, you use me in spite of me. 
And so, Lord, I ask that you would do that again this morning, um, that you would speak through me, um, that as we look at your word, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would inform our minds, that you would touch our emotions, and that our wills would be conformed um, to you, that we would desire to obey your word, to be pleasing to you in all that we say and do. Holy Spirit, be our teacher, be our guide, be our helper here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if we love Jesus, we need to know that we will be hated. Now you say, well, what do you mean? Well, we spend a lot of time talking about what it means to love Jesus. We're not just talking about emotion. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So when I talk about if you love Jesus, it really boils down. If you're living your life like Christ, if you're living a life of obedience, if you're proving your love by the things that you say, the things that you do, you will be hated. And because of that, you will be tempted. You will be tempted to shrink back. But, here's the good news, we have a helper. We have a helper who will enable us to stand firm and to continue to bear witness to who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives. So this morning I want to try to take apart this, the rest of this chapter by addressing two questions. One is, why does the world hate Christians? Okay. Now, I'm not talking about passive pew sitters. I'm talking about bona fide, blood-bought followers of Jesus, okay? Because there's a big difference. The word Christian, by the way, means Christ-like, mini-Christ. It was a term of derision that was given to people who followed Jesus very early uh, once the church was established. And so uh, that's what I'm referring to here. So I want to answer the question, why does the world hate Christians? And then the second question I want us to try to answer is, um, how should we respond to the world's hatred? Because I think those are two important things to discuss. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to John chapter 15. Uh, we're going to read a few verses at a time here. So uh, why does the world hate Christians? Well, let's see what Jesus has to say about it. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So I think the very first reason that Jesus gives why the world is going to hate us is that it hated him. The world hates Jesus. Now, before we go any further, we probably need to define the world, the word world, okay? Because Jesus is clearly not speaking about the physical world. 
He's not talking about inanimate objects hating him, nor is he talking about humanity as a whole, as in for God so loved the world. He is referring to those people whose beliefs, values, and choices are in opposition to God. In Scripture, we, we, we can read different understandings of the world. You know, God created the world. He spoke the world into... Well, he's talking about the physical world. For God so loved the world, he's talking about humanity at large. But here, he's, he's talking about a system. He's talking about an order uh, that is often described as any authority, institution, philosophy, or activity that is opposed to God in his rightful rule and authority um, in life. We sometimes refer to this as the world system or the, world's, or the world order, which is under the control of Satan, which is no surprise that Jesus speaks about Satan as the ruler of this world. So he's talking about all of these organizations and philosophies, and there's a whole list of them that we can go through. Of course, the Apostle John later in his first epistle says this, we know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Jesus is telling us here that if the world hated him, then it will hate all those who bear his name. All those who follow him. And he makes it very clear there in verse 20, if you see it. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If Jesus was hated by the world, and he was, then his servants will be hated. If Jesus was persecuted, and he was, then they will persecute those uh, who follow him. We serve the one the world hates. Does that make sense? Because we're serving the one that they hate, they will hate us. It's kind of a guilt by association, but it's a good association. I'd rather be associated with Jesus than the devil, wouldn't you? So that's the first reason that I think we see here in this passage. The second is that we are not of the world. You see that in verse 19? If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, the world hates it when we don't go along with them. Um when we don't participate with them in their sin. Never forget the first time I really encountered that. It was, it was not too long after I became a believer. Uh, I was living here in Columbus at the time. I went back to Syracuse. And, uh, you know, when you, when you move away from your home, you know, I, I got saved and, and I moved 500 miles to Columbus, Ohio. When you go back home, right, who, who are the, the people and the friends that you have there? They're, they're all a part of your former life, right? So I would go home, and I was actually excited about, you know, hanging out with some of the guys and, uh, and you know, playing sports, playing basketball, doing all sorts of things. Uh, and, um, and I very quickly learned that they didn't know 
about all the changes in my life. They expected me when I came home to be the same old Paul, Paul that I was when I left. And, um, and so we would, we would go clubbing. You know, we would, they, they'd say, hey, let's go to Uncle Sam's or let's go here or let's go to the Paradise Saloon or whatever it might be. I said, sure, hey, let's go. So I would go, but I would go and I wouldn't drink. Well, for a while, it was okay, right? Because we hadn't seen each other in a while. It's good to catch up and all of that. But it wasn't long after that that I began to, you know, um, be a real impediment to them having a good time. What I didn't realize was that my lifestyle, my change in life, was bringing conviction to them. And it made them feel uncomfortable. And the truth is, I was a new creation. You know, Scripture says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. I couldn't do the things that I used to do. I wasn't the same person. I like what D.A. Carson uh, said about this. He said, former rebels who have, by the grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. A lot of truth to that. We no longer live under the dictates of the world. The world is under the influence and control of the evil one. We have a different allegiance now. We, we've been transported from this world, so to speak, to another world, from this realm to a heavenly realm. We've become citizens of heaven. And you know, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of their sins. You see, when a person repents of their sins and believes in the gospel and places their, their trust in Christ, they are born again. They are made to be new creatures. They become citizens of heaven, as Paul says in Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven. That's our new home. So here, Jesus makes it clear that those who follow him are not of this world. We don't belong here. We stick out like a sore thumb. And that's another reason that the world hates us. Jesus says in John chapter 17, which we'll get to here in a few weeks, he says, I have given them, meaning his disciples, your word. He's telling the Father, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So we are not of the world. But Jesus goes on in verse 21 to tell us that another reason for this hatred is that the world does not know the Father. The world is spiritually ignorant and blind. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Back in John chapter 8, verse 19, Jesus said that you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, 
you would know my father also. So this isn't the first time he's accused them of not knowing God, of, of, of not knowing the father. And Jesus spoke Jesus, uh, the father's words to them. The words that the father had given him, he spoke those words. He performed miracle after miracle. He gave them many convincing proofs of his deity, yet they remained blind to who he was. They heard him speak, they saw what he did, but yet they refused to believe. And all the while, they claimed to know God. Now that that shouldn't surprise us, because people today fill churches, and many of which do not know God. They might be like the Jews of Jesus' day. They could quote large passages of Scripture. They could sit there and listen to somebody speak. They, they could tell you the stories of the Old Testament, but yet they do not know God. They do not know the Father. In their willful ignorance, they eventually put Jesus to death. I say willful ignorance. Now, when we engage the world with the claims of Christ, we need to understand we encounter that same willful ignorance, that same spiritual blindness. We face that. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In Ephesians, he writes, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, what usually happens when you tell somebody that they are blind and ignorant? Yeah. Um... We, we can speak the truth in love and still be hated on account of it. Now, I don't suggest that you go up to somebody and tell them, you know, you're blind and ignorant, you know. But that's essentially what we're saying to people who don't know Jesus. They don't know God. They're ignorant of him and the truths of Scripture. They're ignorant of salvation. They're blind to the things of the Spirit of God. And that's why they make the choices that they make. Look at verse 22. It says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So this brings me to another reason why we're hated by the world. And that is that Jesus exposed the world's guilt. He exposed their sin. Now if you look at verse 22... You know, he, he doesn't mean that they had no sin or would not have been guilty of sin if Jesus had not come. Rather, it means that because he has come, they are now without excuse. In coming, Jesus exposed their sin in such a way that they could not hide from it, nor could they plead ignorance. 
It was on full display now, and they hated him for it. In John chapter 3, we read these words, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things and hates the light does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. See, the world hates bona fide Christians because we're children of the light. We have been called to let our light shine. And the world hates the light and prefers the darkness. We have a responsibility too to shine our light. Paul tells us in Ephesians, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. If we're letting our light shine as we should, we can expect to be hated. Because they hated Jesus who was the light of the world. And we are children of the light. A fifth reason that we have for the world's hatred is in verse 25 there. It says the world hates without a cause. It hates without a cause. You see what Jesus said there? They, they hated me without a cause. See, you, you don't need a reason to hate somebody any more than you need a reason to love somebody. Hate and love is a choice. It's an act of the will. You can choose to hate somebody or you can choose to love somebody regardless of their lovability quotient. You can choose to love the unlovable. Is that not what Jesus has done for us? The Bible says that he loved us while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies of his We're told, we're commanded to love our enemies. It's easy to love my friends. It's easy to love those who love me. It's a lot harder to, and so he's not talking about feelings. You know, he's he's talking about a, a decision of the will, a choice to act lovingly towards someone regardless of their lovability. Not only... Is love and hate in some sense irrational? Jesus here, when he says that they hated him without a cause, it's also fulfillment of prophecy. And you can look back, I believe it's Psalm 33, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, um, and you can see these references. So, So their hatred of Jesus without a cause was also a part of the plan, the redemptive plan, a part of prophetic word. Now, it's a sad truth today that many people who live good and godly lives uh, are often hated. But we need to understand that oftentimes it's not because of anything that they've done wrong. It's it's because of the hatred that is in the heart of the hater. Hating us with the same hatred that they hated Jesus with. So let me summarize what we've learned so far and why the world hates us. One, it hated Jesus. And of course... 
they hate Jesus, they're going to hate anybody who's associated with Jesus. Two, we're not of this world. We don't belong here. Three, they don't know the Father. They're ignorant, spiritually blind. Four, their guilt has been exposed. And lastly, they hate without a cause. They don't need a reason to hate. So it's painfully clear that if we love Jesus, we will be hated by the world. So the question now remains, how do we respond? How should we respond to the world's hatred? Well, let's jump ahead a little bit to chapter 16. We'll skip a couple of verses and come back to them. Jesus said in verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. In answering this question, how should we respond to the world's hatred, I want to work our way backward. So we'll start at verse 4 and work our way backward. Um, the, the first thing that I see here in this text is, is that is, is, as far as a, a response, how should we respond? And I'm going to put these in negative forms, but the first is don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised. Jesus told his disciples these things in advance so that when they happen, they would remember that he told them about it. And knowing that Jesus knew about it before it happened would bolster their faith, would strengthen their faith, would help them to understand that Jesus is in control of all things. He knows all things, is in control of all things. He wants them to believe. Elsewhere, he says many times, I tell you these things so that, you know, when they happen, you will believe. So he wants to increase their faith, to fortify them. He wants them to be undaunted in their mission to make disciples. Now, Jesus did not tell the disciples these things at the beginning because he was with them. He had time to disclose truth to them. And it wasn't necessary for them to know everything all at once. It would have been counterproductive. I mean, think about it. What if as soon as Jesus calls his disciples, you know, he says, hey, come and follow me. And I guarantee you, you'll be hated and persecuted and killed. You know, not exactly a great evangelistic strategy. So Jesus understood their faith had to be built up to a point where they could not only hear these words, but embrace them. I mean, because let's face it, even as we're hearing these words today, it does not tickle our, our fancy to think that if I really live for Christ, that I'm going to be hated and ridiculed and maligned. Boy, there's so much I could say about this right now because of, of stuff going on in our our family's life and things that we've experienced. And it's, there, there's spiritual battle going on all over the place. And, and many of you are probably like us. You're in the middle of it. 
And you, you're being hated without a cause. And, 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 and if they know you're a believer, well, then they have lots of reasons to hate you. But don't be surprised by it. So where are you today spiritually? If you're not a Christian, if you're watching online and you're not yet a follower of Christ, this ought to give you pause. This ought to make you, you know what? You know, I was thinking about becoming a Christian, but now I'm not so sure. That's actually a good thing. Because Jesus told us, consider the cost. Consider the cost of what it means to follow me. Because I'm going up a hill. And I'm going to stretch out my arms there. And they're going to put nails through my hands and my feet. They're going to pierce me in my side with a spear. And, and they're going to jam a crown of thorns onto my skin. And they will kill me. And they will do the same to you if you follow me. It's a scary proposition. Makes you wonder why did anybody ever become a Christian? And the only response I can give is they became convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. That he really did die on the cross. That he really did rise from the dead. And that he's alive today. And that he can transform our lives. Give us purpose for living. Give us power for living. That's why I'm a Christian. It's because he first loved me. And I know his love is real. So, if you know Christ this morning, you too need to take Jesus' words to heart. Again, if you're living like Jesus, you shouldn't be surprised that the world doesn't act like Jesus. Okay? The church should not expect the world to act like Jesus, but the world has every right to expect the church to act like Jesus. Second thing I see, the second response, first is don't be surprised. Second response is don't shrink back. Don't shrink back. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Look at verses one through three there. Jesus told them these things so that they would not fear, so that they would not shrink back or fall away. You know, the world hates anyone who doesn't think or talk or act like them. They repudiate everyone who does not adhere to their agenda or value system. And this is exactly where we can be tempted to shrink back and even fall away. Why? Why is that? It's because we all desire to be accepted. We all want to fit in. We, 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 don't, we don't take any pleasure in being hated. We want to be liked. So we will tend to try to avoid the world's hatred. And we can do that in a lot of different ways, but at the end of, end of the day, it all boils down to is we gotta get in line. We gotta, we gotta follow the marching orders of the world. And the world... It exerts a tremendous amount of pressure on Christians and on the church to keep their mouths shut and keep their faith to themselves. If you watch the news, you're aware of this. 
If, if, you're, if you're involved in your kid's you know, school district, you're aware of these things. Each day we are bombarded with hundreds, if not thousands of messages that champion unbiblical, unchristian worldviews. And, and the thing is this, that they don't just merely want us to shut up. They want to convert us. They don't merely want our silence. They want us to become proponents of their worldview, to celebrate it. They, they want us to abandon our beliefs and our convictions and embrace their value system, whether it be on love and marriage, divorce, sexual immorality, homosexuality, gender identity, abortion, and so many other things. Our public education system <laughs> has been godless for some time. But have you been following what's been going on in school districts all across the country? From woke curriculum to transgender bathrooms, to books promoting homosexuality. This is what is now our, our kids are being exposed to. In kindergarten. And what about the entertainment industry? Gosh. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough that, I mean, I can literally remember all those glass ceilings that were broke you know, throughout, you know, the first, you know, interracial kiss and the first swear word and the first, you know, just all these things. And you see, but today, oh my goodness, TV shows, movies, and, and especially now commercials, they unashamedly celebrate um, various deviant lifestyles. I can't believe how in your face it is now. And you can't trust Disney anymore either. Don't get me going on that. <laughs> the hatred, though, that Jesus is talking about in verses 2 and 3 is a specific kind of hatred, probably scarier than anything else. It's religious hatred. But it's not hatred towards religious people. It's hatred by religious people. You see that? They will put you out of the synagogues. So in Jesus' day, these were people who attended church, the synagogue. They were the religious leaders of the day. You remember uh, back a, a while back, we, we were in uh, chapter 9 talking about the, the blind beggar. You remember that story? Um, Jesus uh, healed the man, and then the Pharisees caught wind of it. They were incensed by it and uh, um, called in his parents. You remember that? In, in verse 23, after questioning the parents about whether or not, you know, this was their son and whether or not he was really healed, this is how they responded. He says, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. So, sounds like they were trying to weasel out of giving an answer here. And it says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. 
For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. See, threatening somebody to be put out of the synagogue was a powerful way to keep people in line. And there are a lot of powerful ways to keep us in line, too. And I don't have time to get into all of them, but trust me, they are there. These religious leaders thought that they were offering a service to God. Now, Saul of Tarsus was probably the best example of all of this, right? Saul thought he was serving God, arresting Christians, putting them in jail. But he was mistaken. So, don't be apologetic for believing that the Bible is God's word. Don't, don't shrink back from your convictions. Don't, be, don't compromise your faith in order to avoid the world's hatred. Abide in Christ. Stand firm in him. You know, we're always, we're always going to be tempted because it's human nature. I want to be liked. I want to be accepted. I don't want, you know, but, but listen, we have brothers and sisters all over the world that are losing their jobs, losing their, their homes, losing their livelihood, losing family members and their very lives for the name of Christ. Mark my words, there's a day coming when we're going to face that. You and I may not be alive to see a lot of that, but I, I think that if you track history, if you watch where we've been, where we are, and where we're going, um, it's not gonna get any better. But this gives us as the church a wonderful opportunity to let our light shine so that the world can see there really is a difference between the way we live our lives and the way they live their lives. And God will continue to draw people to himself until the day he returns. The third thing, last thing that I see here, way that we can respond is don't stop testifying about Jesus. See that in verse 26? But when the helper comes, I'll go to 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus promised his disciples and us that he would send the helper, the Spirit of truth, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit. The, the disciples had to wait on him. We don't. He's here. He's present. And he lives in all those who have been born again. One of his responsibilities is to bear witness about Jesus. But he also enables believers to bear witness about Jesus, to testify to Jesus. I hope you come back next week because next week we're going to explore the work of the Holy Spirit in greater detail. So in summary, how are we supposed to respond to the world's hatred? Well, don't be surprised by it. Don't shrink back and don't stop testifying about Jesus.
To be forewarned is to be forearmed. That's what Jesus did for his disciples. He told them in advance that they would be hated, that they would be tempted to shrink back, to fall away on account of him. And guess what? If you love Jesus, if I love Jesus, we too will face the world's hatred. We too will be tempted to shrink back. But we have a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will enable us to stand firm and to testify to who Jesus is. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for your word to us. Lord, this, in many ways, is a heavy word. It's not a word we necessarily want to hear, but Lord, at the same time, we thank you for telling us, for reminding us that the world will hate those who love you. And Lord, thank you that you did not leave us as orphans, but you sent us your Holy Spirit to empower us, to live for you, to strengthen us, to equip us that we might be bold proclaimers of the gospel. So Lord, as we go from this place this morning, I pray that you would help us do just that, that we would not shy away from letting our light shine so that others might come to know you and love you and desire to serve you even as we do. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.